Well, last week we began looking at this psalm together, and uh, we're going to finish it up this week. And uh, we are preaching uh, through a bunch of the psalms this summer. Um, starting next week, we're going to be looking at the ones that you all responded to our survey and told us were your favorites. Uh, believe it or not, next week, the first favorite of yours that we're going to preach is Psalm 23. Anyone shocked? Of course not. It's a great one. So um, that's what we're doing. So, uh, But I wanted to start with Psalms 1 and 2 because it has long been believed by the early church fathers and uh, Bible scholars since then that these two psalms were placed at the beginning of the entire 150 psalms um, to introduce all of the psalms to us. So the themes that are in Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 um, carry out throughout uh, the whole Psalter. So we've looked at Psalm 1. Last week we started in Psalm 2 and we're going to continue. Uh, but let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful um, that you love us so much that you uh, had recorded and have preserved these words for us. Um, we uh, hold your word in highest regard because apart from your revelation of yourself in this written word, we wouldn't know you. We wouldn't know Jesus. We wouldn't know the Spirit. We wouldn't know what it means to live in your story. Um, and so we thank you again for your word. And we ask that your Spirit would come and, and teach us. Um, there, there are no magical ways that I could present this material to make people believe. Your Spirit has to come and open our hearts so that we believe what is written in this psalm and so that we respond to it in the way that you want us to respond. So we ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've told you that uh, Psalms 1 and 2 are all about the theme of the blessed life. Um, you know, everybody's telling you how to live your blessed life, I mean, your best life now. But the Bible tells you how to live the blessed life now and forever. So we uh, told you that Psalm 1 starts with, blessed is the man who, and Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So uh, this, Psalms 1 and 2 are a, a big blessing sandwich, if you will, and uh, everything in between that first mention of blessing and the last mention of blessing tell us what the blessed life is all about. And so uh, that's where we've been. But if you're like me, if you read Psalm 1, you say to yourself, yes, I, I want that. I, I want to listen to what God says, and I want to love what God loves. I want to be like a tree planted by streams of living water. I want to grow deep in and go wide with the love of God. But there's something that keeps me from listening to and living by God's definition of the blessed life. There's something that keeps pulling me to pursue other definitions of the blessed life. Why, I ask myself, do I keep getting sucked back into living my life 
the way people who don't love Jesus tell me I should live it. And if that's you, welcome. Um, Psalm 2 explains what's going on behind that struggle um, that Psalm 1 exposes in us. Um, it, it explains that there's a war going on for the hearts of people and for our hearts, and that war is taking place in us. Uh, it's a cosmic war that's taking place outside of us, but it's also taking place inside us. So Psalm 2 explains that to us. It also explains what God has done about this war, and it also explains how you and I must respond to what he's done. Um, Psalm 2 is telling the story behind our story. And it all boils down to, which king are you going to serve? That's what it all boils down to. So, whatever or whomever has my loyalty also has my life. My head and my heart and my hands will follow the lead of whatever or whomever holds sway over me. Whatever or whomever has me has my head, has my heart, has my hands. And so that's how Psalm 1 and 2 connect together. And, and this is what the entire 150 Psalms teach us. So if you put these two together, you see that the blessed life Life at its, full, at its fullest, life as it was meant to be lived, is enjoyed by those who, give, who have given God the attention of their minds and the affections of their hearts, that's Psalm 1, because they have given God the allegiance of their will, that's Psalm 2. So, I want to remind you, I did this last week, but I want to remind you quickly how Psalm 2 is put together, because it's an odd psalm, and you wonder, so how does this apply to my daily life. I'm going to hopefully explain that to you, but, but you kind of have to understand the structure of Psalm 2. So let me first put Psalm 2 in a nutshell for you. Verse 1 starts with a narrator saying, why on earth would you rebel against heaven's king? Why would you rebel against the true and righteous king? Look, if you do, here's how it's going to play out for you. Verses 2 and 3. You will rebel and claim yourself as your own ruler. Verses 4 and 5. The Lord, the true king, will be rightfully angry at your ridiculous attempt to rebel, and you will come under his wrath. And the rest of the psalm, verses 6 through 12, heaven's king will establish a human king who will redeem rebels who repent and find refuge in him, but who will utterly ruin those rebels who continue to run from him. That's Psalm 2. Here, here's another way to look at Psalm 2. You could divide it into two parts, two perspectives or, or two proclamations that are being made. There's the rebel and the righteous ruler. First, the rebel speaks in the ridiculous rage of arrogance and says this. I'll tell you what the good life is, the blessed life. I will be free. I will cast off God's confining rule and I'll throw away all his suffocating rules. My loyalty lies with me, thank you very much. Therefore, I will listen to what I want to learn and I will love what I want to love because I rule. That's the rebel's proclamation. But the righteous ruler says this, 
and answers that rebel cry in a righteous, with a righteous and redeeming anger and says this, There is only one way to the blessed life. True freedom is found when you repent of your rebellion and rest in my rule. I rule. I am the sovereign who saves, the king who is kind, the Lord who loves. Which side of my rule do you want to experience? My justice or my mercy? That's Psalm 2. Now, what I want to try to do, what I started to do last week and what I'm finish doing this week is to show you uh, what this has to do with your daily life. Tall order. Here we go. So, um, in your program, if you want to, want to take notes, I've, I've kind of got the outline. We covered the first two points last week. I'll summarize them, but here are the four. First of all, verses 1 and 2, there's already a ruler. And then verses 1, and th- one through 3 t- show us the anatomy of, that, of the rebellion. Um, verses 4 through 9 tell us that there's an anointed ruler. And verses 10 through 12 tell us the appropriate response to that ruler. So last week we looked at the first two. Let me summarize. First, there's already a ruler. Um, he rules over all things and all people. So as I said last week, there is a ruler, and it's not you. So quit applying for the job. Okay? I say this to myself as well. But he's not just a ruler. We're used to absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, right? This isn't the way it works with God, the ruler. Um, he has absolute power, but he's absolutely pure. He's absolutely righteous. So he's a righteous ruler. And you and I were made to live in submission to and service to this great, glorious, good, and gracious king. In fact, we were made to serve alongside him, to rule with him, Genesis tells us. And so that's why the psalmist asked this question at the beginning of the psalm. Why would you rebel against a righteous ruler like this? Indeed, why would we want to live outside of the way we were made to live? Why would we want to live out of step with the person for whom and the purpose for which we've been made? Who wouldn't want to live in a world ruled by a perfectly great, glorious, good, and gracious ruler who invited us to join him in his work in the world? Who loves us, who is for us, not against us? Who gives us all we need to enjoy perfect personal relationships, perfectly purposeful work and creativity in a place of perfect peace and prosperity. Why would you rebel against such a ruler like that? And that's the the incredulous question that begins the psalm. Well, then uh, we go on to learn the anatomy of the rebellion, of of the heart that rebels against such a king. Um, And verses 1 through 3 tell us that too. Um, these rebel kings that are mentioned in the first couple of verses. Well, who are they? They are the, the kings who rebelled against David, God's anointed back then. But then in Acts chapter 4, as we read last week, um, the, the apostles and the disciples read Psalm 2 as talking about Jesus. They are those who rose up and rebelled against Jesus and had him crucified. But the hearts of those rebels are no different than the hearts of these rebels in this room. 
We've all inherited that rebellious me-first heart from Adam and Eve who conspired to cast off God's rule, the one rule He gave them. And uh, we have inherited that sin of rebellion. And our hearts rage naturally against God's rule and against God's ruler. So we have to remember that Psalm 2 teaches that there's There's no true happiness, there's no true blessedness when we're in rebellion against God. Happiness or wholeness only come when we are submitted to this righteous ruler, not conspiring against him. So, that's where we we were last week. There is a ruler, you're not him, and there are rebels. We are them, okay? So, now... How has God responded to this uprising, to this rebellion? In verses 49, we see that he responded by establishing his anointed ruler. And that word anointed is, in those days, when a king was coronated, they would anoint him with oil. And so, um, actually, anointed one is where we get the word Messiah or Christ, So God has responded to the rebellion by anointing his Messiah, his Christ, his king. In verses 4 to 6, heaven's king announces his wrath and his ruler. He says, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Remember in Psalm 1, there's the scoffers, and, and we were told that the blessed person does not sit in the seat of those who scoff at God. Well, now God is the one who scoffs at those who rebel against him. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. He holds them in in derision. Rebellion against heaven's king is ridiculous. Parents, I'm going to give you a little tip here. If your child ever says to you, that's ridiculous, here's how you can respond. Are you meaning to tell me, ridiculous means that uh, it is something that is worthy of ridicule. Are you telling me, child, that what I told you is worthy of ridicule? That you would laugh and scoff at what your father or your mother has asked you to do? And of course, in the heart of, if they're honest, they're going to have to say, well, yeah, that's how I feel. Sometimes we use words that we don't know what they mean. Um, But God thinks this rebellion is ridiculous. It's silly. Why? How do you think you're going to rebel against the one who made you and get away with it? John Calvin said this, Wicked men may now conduct themselves as wickedly as they please, but they shall at length feel what it is to make war against heaven. Wow. He says, God is so far exalted above the men of this world that the whole mass of them could not possibly obscure his glory in the least degree. Friends, when we, when we chafe under God's rules, when we try to cast off his control, um, Calvin's saying, Psalm 2 is saying, keep it up, and at some point you're going to feel what it means to make war against heaven. Verses 5 and 6 Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice that that God's angry retribution comes through his anointed ruler, the Messiah, the Christ. Um, And this, in Psalm 2, first refers to King David, who was anointed by Samuel with oil to rule as God's human king. But even in those days, David and the people knew that God promised there would come an even greater king, the great king from David's line, because God had made a covenant with David, and there would be another anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, Zion referred both to the Temple Mount and Jerusalem. Uh, This is where God's throne was placed, the mercy seat that's in the Holy of Holies of the temple. This is the place where, our, uh, where the people's sin were, was covered with the blood of the sacrifice and the wrath of God was satisfied. That's God's throne. And so, God, set, God has set his king, Jesus the Christ, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the place where rebellious sin is covered and God's wrath is is atoned as a substitute was sacrificed in the rebel's place. He has set not just his judge on his holy hill, but his judge who would be judged in the place of his people. That's the kind of king that God uses to respond to the rebellion of people. Jesus is the great king, the promised son of David, the the Messiah, this king, Messiah, this Christ, is the one who would both judge rebels and be judged for them. David read for us in Acts 10 this morning. um, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus as judge. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So there's that, there's that juxtaposition again that's in Psalm 2. Jesus, the judge, is also the one whom, if you take refuge in him, if you believe in him, you'll, fe- you'll receive forgiveness for your rebellion in his name, through his name. This is the one that God has sent to answer the rebellion of people. And and notice, though, that God's anger is redemptive anger. It's redemptive. He rages against the sin that destroys his creatures. The reason God gets so angry at our sin is because our sin is destroying us. It's destroying whom he has made. In his image. It's redemptive. He provides a king who redeems what sin has ruined. So, God's righteous anger against arrogant rebels will land in two places. His righteous anger will either land on Jesus for the sake of those who take refuge in him, who trust in him, or his righteous anger will land on the rebel those who take refuge in themselves or trust in themselves. 
That's where God's righteous anger ultimately will land, either on Jesus for you or you for yourself. That's the truth of what the Bible teaches. So then, let's continue in verses 7 through 9. The Messiah then, this anointed king, announces his right to rule. And and that's a great question. What gives Jesus the right to be this ruler chosen by God? Um, And so the anointed ruler speaks of the decree, the covenant that God made with David, and the right that it gives him to rule. First of all, Jesus has the right to rule because of his relationship to heaven's king. He is his son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's the rightful heir. Uh, Speaking about Jesus, the author of Hebrews quoted Psalm 2-7 and said this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus has the right to rule because he's the only son who has done everything right. He is the righteous man described in Psalm 1. Jesus also has the right to rule because of his relationship to the nations. He is their sovereign king. They are his inheritance. Verses 8 through 9 tell us that. Jesus deserves to rule because he's been given authority over all peoples and places by God. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Folks, what this tells us is that Jesus is Lord whether you submit to him or not. You know, there is no Jesus take the wheel. He's got the wheel. We just need to let go. Um, we need to quit fighting for the control that he already has. So so how is he going to inherit these nations? How is he going to rule them? One of two ways. He's either going to rule them by force or by faith. Um, Paul tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But that doesn't mean everybody will be saved. Their confession will either come by force because they will have to admit, finally, Jesus is Lord. Or their confession will come by faith as they submit to him and believe, yes, you are Lord, you are my Lord, who gave yourself in my place. And I submit to you. So, that's the anointed ruler. And then the psalmist goes on to tell us, so what is the appropriate response to this ruler who's been established established? Uh, by God, heaven's king. Verses 10 through 12 say this. Now, therefore, O kings, and he's talking to us too, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Quickly, several, several responses that are in these verses. First of all, verse 10, be wise. 
Wise up, is what he's saying. John Calvin said this about this verse. David says, be wise. The beginning of true wisdom is when a man lays aside his pride and submits himself to the authority of Christ and serves him with fear. This service is not grievous, but pleasant and desirable since it furnishes, it furnishes all matter of true goodness. The only true and salutary joy is that which arises from resting in the fear and reverence of God. Wise up, he says. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Wise up and do this. So he goes on in verse 11. Serve heaven's king with fear and rejoice while you tremble. Rejoice with trembling. I I was thinking about that. So what are some times that you rejoice and tremble at the same time? Last weekend, the youth group, we we went to Dollywood. A roller coaster is a great example of a time when you rejoice and tremble all at the same time. In fact, there's something about the fear and the thrill that gives you joy. It's weird, I know. But there's all kinds of ways in which we have rejoicing and fear mixed. How about your wedding day? How about your wedding day? How about the day your children were born? You're rejoicing and fearing all all at the same time. How about going on a mission trip, check team? There's part of you that's trembling, but you will rejoice even though you fear. Uh, How about going off to college or starting your adult life? Um, How about making a big presentation at work? Um, Leading a team or a project or that big game or that performance, whatever it is. How about being a pastor of a church when you've never pastored a church as the lead pastor before? <laughs> I rejoice and I tremble all at the same time. See, it's, it's, this is what living in submission to heaven's king and his anointed ruler gives you the opportunity to do because we take joy in, mo- in moments of high risk and great purpose. We're, we were made to be uh, on these joyful journeys and to rejoice in risky responsibilities. That's what we were made for. This is life in God's kingdom. Think of the disciples in Acts. Think of it. They rejoiced as they were being put into prison for preaching Jesus. They came out and rejoiced that they were able to suffer in his name. Folks, life in the kingdom is not boring. Ask the apostles when we get to heaven. uh, Was it ever boring following Jesus? No. Did it hurt? A lot. Did you love it? Every minute. Boredom of the soul, folks, is something that can only be cured by serving the God who has served you through Jesus, not serving yourself. Rejoice. Serve Him with fear and trembling and joy. Then he says in verse 12, kiss the son. This is still, what is the appropriate response to this king? Kiss the son. 
I thought, kiss the sun. I know that sounds weird to us, but there's, there's three kinds of kisses that I could think of here. There's the kiss of allegiance, where you kiss the ring of the king and you declare your allegiance to him and his rule. There's the kiss of affection, where you kiss him on his cheek. And then there's the kiss of adoration, like that woman in Luke 7 who worshipped at Jesus' feet and kissed his feet. The song that uh, these guys sang during the offertory uh, is a song by Wren Collective. It's called Alabaster, and it, it's a song about that woman kissing the feet of Jesus. And I can't, I can't, I can't listen to that song without tears because I long for the day when I can see him face to face and I can say, I will bow my life at your feet, at your feet. My lips, so lost for words, will kiss your feet, will kiss your feet. The appropriate response to Jesus who gave himself for you is to kiss him, embrace him, kiss him in allegiance, kiss him with affection, kiss him with adoration. And finally, it says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Refuge. Derek Kidner said, there is no refuge from this king. There is only refuge in him. It means trust him. Entrust your whole life to him. And again, folks, I think our biggest problem, my biggest problem with submitting to King Jesus is that I don't trust his heart. I don't trust him. I'm not going to submit myself totally, fully to one that I can't, that, that I don't think is really for me. But this table we're about to celebrate together is proof, is the greatest proof that the heart of this king can be trusted. So whatever it is in your life right now that you refuse to submit to Jesus, whether it's your whole life or, or parts of it, um, by the way, the Christian life is just a, a continual, what else do I need to submit to you, God? What else, what else do you want? What else do you want? You're not going to do it if you don't trust his heart for you. The heart of this king is good. The heart of this king is good. And so the response should be that we repent, believe, and obey. Repent of our rebellious taking back control, being the king of our own lives. Think of those areas. I've got a couple of areas where he's putting his finger on him and saying, are you going to submit that part, Jimmy? Repent of your refusal to let him rule whatever part of your life it is you won't let him rule. And then believe, again, believe the gospel again, that the one who is judged came and was judged for you, for your sins, not his, for your rebellion, not his. He loves you that much. You can trust his heart even as you submit that thing that you won't let go. You can trust him with it. 
and then obey Him. Meditate on His story day and night. Learn the story of Jesus in God's Word. Love the story of Jesus in God's Word. Live in the story of Jesus as it is presented in God's Word. Kiss the Son. Because at this table, the Son kisses you. Oh, Father, thank you. Forgive us for not trusting your heart. Thank you for this table that reminds us again that you invite into fellowship with yourself rebels. That King Jesus, you are the kind of king who lays your life down for rebels. You gave your body and your blood so that rebels like us could sit at your table as sons like you. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Help us now as we come to this meal to know your kiss and to kiss you and love you with our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.